Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. The cats that I've been interviewing have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off of for years. They play little parts and serve the song as conduits for information coming through them from the heavens. For the most part, the cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way and become part of the musical conversation. I am all in for the musicians as we slowly move forward after a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Spiritual live music is a healing force and can bridge humanity's gaps by touching hearts and souls. Every time I go to a concert in the last couple of years, I am bringing that voltage to the bandstand from one minute from minute one because I want the cats to get out of their thinking mind. You get that crowd activation, and the next thing you know, through that intensity, you're getting the musicians off. That's a spiritual experience, raising the collective consciousness. The cats revitalize my spirit and get the creative juices flowing again so I can let the body dance. We live in this time where people feel the only way they have freedom is by abandoning logic, abandoning truth. Institutions and norms are crumbling and the leadership is too old. Each generation before naturally passed the lineage of leadership to a future generation. As seekers, we must identify new leaders, leaders who make others aware of their habitual nature and motivate them to cultivate their true nature. Leaders who radiate their light and aura back to those who look up to them. Leaders who exude grace, even, through the, even in the face of frustration, pain, and injustice. Life is not always peaceful, especially if you're a professional artist. You have to know your instrument, hone your sound, be a leader and a teammate at the same time, and find places to play that believe in the profession of music. That it's not a pay-to-play game. That music is to be felt and not for pacification. That you need to burn and go beyond the atmosphere because we will be leaving this planet for other worlds. Amy Helm, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful way to step into a conversation about music and what beautiful writing. Thank, well, thank you, you for, my friend. for reading that. You know, I just I have to start with this because he's his spirit is here today. He's was with me last night and I I really would love you to talk about you know, sort of the fond memories or the experiences that you had with Jasper Diamond Helm. <laughs> oh my gosh, going straight to the uh, You know, because you know Ronnie TV. Hawkins, you know Ronnie when I interviewed Ronnie rest in peace, he was just like mm-hmm. talking about uh, uh, diamond and uh he just yeah. uh, the guy i mean he was from such a different generation but yet yeah i mean i just would love you to talk i mean being his grand he must have been crazy about you so i just kind of wanted you to talk about uh him <laughs> jd jd papa of course mm. what i called him um papa was <clears throat> My, my my clearest memory of him, I was close to him. I was close to my grandmother, my dad's mom was really uh you know, she's she she was we were we were closer in our in our conversation, but Papa was was the teacher of music in the family. Wow. And um wow. I'll tell you something interesting about him. Actually I was just thinking about this because I was just down south um playing a set of music on the porch of my father's childhood home which is this like sharecropper's cabin i saw the um, picture i saw that picture yeah, yeah it was beautiful yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Papa was, his mother was a 100% Choctaw Indian, a woman named Dolly, who married his dad when she was probably 14 or 15. Um, and his dad was probably 15 or 16 and worked in one of the logging camps. So all these young teenagers, you know, like working, they didn't go to school. They were all very poor and probably got up to a third grade education or something like that and basically started working. And um, I was thinking about his mother, Papa's mother, Dolly, because when I was down there on that porch singing, I thought, you know, it's cool to celebrate my father's career and I'm so proud of what my dad, who he was and the musician he was and honored and proud to have been able to stand side by side with him and sing with him and all of that. And yet when I was on that porch, I thought, but what about the women down here? Absolutely. What about the women who were down here with their kids and no water and no electricity and Mm. out sharecropping in the fields and babies on their hip and having to cook in that hot heat and all of it. I mean, that's not even, that's just a day, that's just a day's chores, let alone the, the suffering. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And losing kids. I mean, I can't think of a single family I knew down there that didn't, you know, lose a baby to pneumonia because in the 1940s in Marvel, Arkansas, it might as well have been 1800. You know, it was very like, (laughs) it was very remote and very undeveloped down there. And so anyway, talking about Papa, I was thinking about his mother, Dolly, and I thought, and of all the women, how strange it must have been for her to sort of be in this and have her own history and tradition kind of erased and not really part of her story. It wasn't something celebrated. There's nothing about her being a Choctaw that I know about. There's no stories. There's no, there's no words that were passed down. Do you know what I mean? I was just kind of thinking, contemplating that when I was well, down there. And yeah, no, I just, and, first but, of all, can you, can yeah. you, I mean, cause I've, I've talked to cats who from, from like the new Orleans area and, and they're, you know the the Indians and the slaves they they actually collaborated a lot, um, and you know the Indians would would bring them tambourines and rhythms and th- but I mean Choctaw, uh-huh. it, what what kind of lineage is that as it relates to Native American? Is it is it mixed ra- mixed culture mixed race? No, I think Choctaw was just a tribe mm. of of Native Indians. I don't actually know as much about it as I should. I mean, just last month I was down there thinking. I really have to, I need to know about this. Absolutely. Because, you know, it was, and, and, and it was fascinating to me that that's, you know, that was his mom. And, um, you know, Papa was a very musical guy and he, he played guitar and he sang and he loved it. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was just thinking about all of that. And I was just thinking about how I know more about him than I do about her and that that was interesting to me. But, but I will tell you something funny about Papa, which is that he was, he had a way of teaching music. He would sit there with me across the table and he'd be singing me these old, the song, Little Birds. Do you know the song, Little Birds? Um, Probably if I heard it, but go ahead. Yeah. It's an old, what they used to call them story songs. And it's like one of these, you know, five verse 
songs that he would teach me that has a long story that unfolds. Mm. And, and mm. he was very particular when he taught you a song. He didn't want you to drift your eye contact away for even a moment. Like, if you looked at the clock and he was in the middle of a verse, he would start singing really loud to pull your attention back to him so that he could teach you the whole song. And I have a funny memory of him trying to teach me, or he did teach me Little Birds, but I was maybe, you know, 16 or 17, and God knows I had a lot on my mind besides learning Little Birds with him in the kitchen, and I just remember being in the kind of height of my teenage girl, like, you know waiting to see a friend, waiting for the phone to ring, waiting to go out, wondering if we were what we were going to do tonight. Absolutely. Trying to teach me that song. <laughs> I mean, that's where my older daughter is right now. So, I, I mean, but yeah, no, see, he would, he, would, he would raise his voice and let you know that you better focus on him. Oh, yeah, it would just get a little bit more intense and a little louder <laughs> when he got to this because my eyes were drifting. Or I mean, shit, if the phone rang, that was like, you know, he'd kind of like just bring my attention right back, let someone else pick it up. And he was just, he was funny that way. You know, it's funny. Um, I, 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 I have these great, well, I, I'll read a couple of quotes. One quote here um, from uh, the legendary guitarist uh, Jim Weeder. When I interviewed him, he said, um, "You know, he said Amy Helm can play some drums. She grew up listening to her father. She's a natural talent. I love Amy." And then the other cat who has left us, who I just loved so much, was the legendary multi instrumentalist Howard Johnson. And he said, "Oh yeah." He said that on the uh, Dirt Farmer album when it first came out. The tracks that you were on, a lot of people thought they were it was Levon, but it was you. And it's true. And I just, you know, maybe it's hard for you because it, you are you, but I just wanted you to talk about maybe going back to, I mean, in the womb, was your mom and dad together a lot? Did you feel a lot of, do you, were you told that you were, that you were always around sort of that pulse and that live music experience uh, even before you came out. Because, I mean, as, as in, I love the idea of, I mean, I play drums not professionally, but I have felt that four-way coordination. It is a magical feeling. I'm not from the academy. But for you, like, as a natural talent, I just wonder if, 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 you, if you knew how far back that started, if it, if it was from the womb. Wow. Well, I mean... You know, I just don't know, but I do think that, I think that music is most definitely um, passed down genetically, too. I mean, it seems like everybody I know who plays, whether they do it for a living or not, they have someone in their family who played as well. You know, there's someone back there, a grandparent who was an organ player in the church or right. whatever, whatever it was. There seems to always be some of that. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, with drumming, you know, I have, I can play two beats and I can play them in three and I can play them in four. And that's about the extent of my drumming. <laughs> well, I mean, you're getting some pretty heavy compliments. Yeah. Sorry? Uh, no, I mean, the, these guys don't throw around compliments a lot. Weeder and Johnson, I mean, you can't get higher compliments than that. I'm just saying that the groove <laughs> and the feel uh, is, is a natural thing, probably genetic. I just was wondering maybe more to the point, were your folks, I mean, because 
like I've interviewed Jim Keltner, and he he first met your dad at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house. It was about a year before you were born. I'm just trying to figure out how much they were together and how much maybe you were around uh, some of the live experiences. I'm just, I mean, part of that is just like, it, the, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, but but vibration is just is just there, and I just I I was wondering if if you were ever aware if, or if your mom lived somewhere else, you know, when you were born and you kind of no, went back. No, I mean I was, I'm sure I was around, I'm sure I was around music, and I mean who knows about vi- vibrations and interesting, you know, having I have two boys myself that are 14 and 11 Mm. and my 14 year old is deep into the drums like without any I never in fact I probably not only did I not um put that on him I probably went the extreme opposite of just completely hands-off in terms of music so they never you know so that they came to it themselves if they were going to and my son is really into the drums and um and he, he was, you know, when I was pregnant with him, I was playing rambles every, every week and mm. singing with Ola Bell and all of that stuff. And I do think that, you know, when you're pregnant, you can feel the baby. I'm sure you've heard this before from, from your own experience, too. The baby moves, you know. I'm sure when, you're, when your partner was pregnant with your, with your daughter, you probably would, you know, you can feel them move more in the belly when there's more outside noise, and that's always an interesting thing. They really do respond to, you know, to the sounds that they hear in the world. What, what, um, I think it's beautiful that you didn't, you know, that you let him come to it naturally. I mean, in, in some ways, uh, I just wonder, like, when he, when was the first time, has he been in, into the drums from, is it only kind of recently that he went, hardcore into it or is it something that he's been he was you know he could always i always saw it in him he was always just very very musical even when he was a toddler he would learn you know frosty the snowman and he'd learn all the verses and he'd remember all the lyrics and i just always had a sense of you know his musicality when he was very little but he probably started playing drums when he was about eight and got into it and then he abandoned it he quit when he was like 10 and he was Mm. like i'm done not Mm -hmm. playing anymore and i didn't say anything and he didn't play for like a year and then i don't even remember how he fell back into it and then we just haven't looked back i mean he's really full on it's his whole it's his whole life i mean it's it's comparable to you know a kid who really excels in sports and you're like a sports mom that's kind of what i'm what well, no, but I mean, it's me, which is wonderful. Well, can you talk a little bit about because <clears throat> how old is he now? Sixteen or fifteen? He's four, fourteen. So he's My fourteen. fourteen. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. you go back to you know, you know the the sixties and seventies. He would, if he had grown up in an urban center, he would have already been part of a union. Um, he probably would have been playing in the studios. He he probably would have been singing for his supper in some ways. I mean, he would have been living That's under, interesting. you know, and, and like. That's interesting. Yeah, well, no, because well, he's so having a modern. He's having a modern day experience of that, and that he has a meters cover band that plays. Well, that's freaking badass. <laughs> no, I, so I wanted you to talk about. I wanted you to talk about what that full plate of gumbo musically looks like. I mean. He has. A, I love that. He's. I mean, if you if you were going to have any kind of cover band, that would be the band to do it. But what what else is he? I mean, at fourteen, um, you know, can you talk about how you know the the uh, his his musical life right now? What that looks like. 
Well, yeah, he's, you know, he is so, uh, so incredibly lucky to have incredible teachers. He has, you know, in his own, just his family community between me and his dad, you know, my ex-husband is a wonderful musician as well. And he's, you know, very much, we are very much in each other's lives Mm. as parents. And so Lee is, and Jay is a great saxophone player and plays with the Midnight Ramble Band and plays with Little Feet. And so Lee has grown up around all of his and my friends um, and and has, you know, Tony Leone, who's a wonderful old friend of mine who plays drums in the Ramble ah, Band. Legend, legendary um, cat. He, yes, yeah. and he's, you know, he's one of Lee's mentors and takes him under his wing. And, and there's just a bunch of people, musicians that have, that are kind of, you know, teaching him and guiding him along. And then he has a wonderful teacher named Jason Bowman who runs a school up here called the Rock Academy. And he is, I mean, you know, one great teacher can shape a kid's life so profoundly, and I'm seeing that a lot with Jason. He's he's just an excellent... um, His expectations are very high for his students. He doesn't... Uh, he doesn't allow any bullshit with it. He has the right mission statement and intention and is teaching them to be respectful. And he's kind of kicking their ass in the most um, loving but strong way that you would want a teacher. You know, it's like getting a great No, I'm with you 100%. A, a basketball team. Right. No, you try to get the mo- I mean, really, you try to get the most. The, the key is when things are really seemingly going very well to, to continue to mm-hmm. inspire them to get more out of them. That's always yeah. the, the, whether it's sports or music, that's the, and to do that gracefully is, is, is a big challenge, but if yeah, you can do he's it. he's really incredible. And this rock Academy is, it's just an incredible place. There are students. So Lee is part of the advanced ensemble, which is called show band, which is for kids that are, you know, 12 and up that are more serious about playing and pursuing music as a career. And, and, um, then there's a lot of kids that join that do shows, younger kids that do shows there just because they love it. And they want the experience of trying to learn, um, Neil Young on a guitar. And so then they do a Neil Young show and they participate in it. And it's just, I watch, you know, I was thinking a lot about Rock Academy and Jason and that whole scene when you were reading your intro to mm-hmm. the podcast because lately, because of the age both my kids are in it, my younger son is now starting to play piano and sing and he's joined it. So I'm over there all the time and I'm at the shows all the time and I'm getting to meet the kids and connect and I'm even doing some um, vocal coaching when I'm home, helping the kids with their harmonies and stuff. And it is such a reminder of the power of music when you have a bunch of people doing it for the pure love of it, you know, <laughs> like, and, and of all levels, too, when you have, you know, kids who maybe their calling is not music, but they're doing it to exercise the practice of that surrender and the joy of it. And when you see it in that purest form, it is such a reminder of it. I mean, going to those Rock Academy shows is one of the most delightful things. It always resets me and inspires me. It's, hmm. it's really great. 
so much in my head right now, Amy Helm. I mean, I, I, I wanted to, you know, this is interesting because obviously, you know, I mean, in some ways I love your dad's side projects, um, the RCO all-stars, the, 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 the stuff he did. I don't know if you were kind of almost old enough to be on this tour, but it was like the mm-hmm. Russell Smith and, and, uh, and Levon went on this incredible tour, but the, you know, the point is your dad, you know, it's, it's leave on this and leave on that. And I, and, and I just wanted you to talk about how you learned to surrender and basically accept, you know, like Michael Shreve, who's the drummer from Santana, you know, his, his drum solo, the weather held up at Woodstock and his drum solo was caught on TV, which at the time was still a relatively new resource he became an overnight sensation and then for the next 40 or 50 years he's creating his own art and music and people keep going back to the Woodstock thing and he it was driving him he's like he was trying to make people make a right turn or make a let you know try to ch- check this out and it would just drive him nuts and at a certain point he was like you know what just don't say anything be grateful that people that you had an impact on people's lives and mm-hmm. as it relates mm-hmm. to you who is a natural music you know you have natural rhythm natural music but you do want and you have created your own original music and i just wanted you to talk a little bit about if there was a period of time where you kind of surrendered to the idea okay my dad has this legacy i get it we're going to play a lot of these great tunes they're iconic. They're going to live on forever. But I'm still okay. I'm content creating my own music. And even even if it doesn't get, you know, like that insecurity of wanting to be recognized for who you are. Can you talk about how you sort of evolved to this point where, I mean, because, I mean, I don't need to tell you. I mean, that, you know, the band is, you know, your dad was just such a monster personality and player and actor. And I just wanted you to talk about how, you know, if there was a seminal time where you sort of accepted that and then also came to peace with the fact that you want to create your own original stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, gosh, it's a long, I'm, I, I'm thinking of a way to. Yeah, you just riff any way you want. You don't, you know, actually, yeah. uh, I, no, it's just, I could, it's, it's such a, it's such a long <laughs> answer with so many layers and levels to it. Um, you know, that, that, that also depend, you know, that have evolved over time. And I think that, you know, the first thing I would say is that, that when you have a, a, a parent or someone in your family that is, that has such a light on them, and then you go into the same business, you know, it's impossible to not have people project something onto you, right? right? And That's what I'm saying. Mean exactly. Well, exactly. Even if they, no. even if they are the kindest, most supportive people, <laughs> and, and even if they dig what you do solo, you know, it, even if they dig the way you sing or the way you play, it's impossible to not project something onto someone. I have done it myself, meeting a kid of, or the wife of so-and-so, or the brother of so-and-so. I mean, it's just, it's it's kind of a part of our human nature. I think that the first thing I would say is that from a very young age, I, I always sang in bands since I was, you know, 
So I, was, I, I always sang and played music. That's just what I could naturally do since I was very young. So it was already a part of my identity in school and second grade and the choir and third grade. And I would play piano and write songs. And then I was in bands by the time I was 14. Mm. So it was always my peers that were giving me you know, the most honest reflection back of who I was. What is my, you know what I mean? Like, Can you give an example? Uh, I would love an example. Because, I mean, yeah, you're talking like, like early like, 80s. This is so, late 70s, early 80s. There was no internet. There yeah. was no visual. We weren't saturated with visual material. I'd love if you right. give an example. Right. Honesty well, of, the you first, well, you know what else I got was, was a real, um, gave me some space with all of this, is that my dad, no one knew who my dad was. By the time I was in ninth grade, yeah. and I was 14 years old, and I was getting serious, you know, I sang in the jazz ensemble, and I was always a singer, you know, and people knew me, my friends knew me as singing, I sang in bands, I sang in jazz bands, I sang in rock and roll bands, no one knew who the band was, like maybe a couple of friends had parents that knew the band and thought it was cool that my dad was Levon Helm, so I had this kind of, you know, this this time period where it was just he was in total he was completely obscure that is absolutely um, mind-blowing i mean that th and that's because we were just in in this sort of punk rock world i mean or the band had dis had, had broken up at the, the original band had broken up after the last waltz but how yeah, do you account the original for the band their thing was just not they weren't you know it wasn't 1970 it wasn't <laughs> big pain it was yeah. a different period of time and my dad and those guys were in a different place and so i had that experience um and and as time has gone on you know it wasn't really it wasn't sort of like the choice to play my own music instead of the band stuff because it wasn't ever it, it, my own thing was always in place. It was just how much was I going to explore it. But I really sang in bands from the time I was 14 up through now. Um, and I was in a group called Olabel um, when I was, you know, from age 30 to about, I mean, that was 10 years in that band. And then with my dad's band for 10 years and before Olabel, I was in all kinds of different projects around town and I did a lot of jingle work and singing as a background vocalist and all that kind of stuff and I I say all of this not to not to sound like I'm reading my resume but just to try to explain I guess that I it wasn't that I was untouched by insecurity but I also had a real clear reflection of who I was as a singer and I had a community of fellow players and singers you know what I'm saying and mm -hmm. that's kind of where I got that's where I would understand kind of where I was at what I wanted to get better at you know and and I've had I've gotten to play with some really phenomenal people and and still do just just musicians and singers that might not be famous but are just you know the greatest teachers I've had and Another aspect of this, too, of course, is that I was in my dad's band for 10 years. So instead of it being like a looming kind of legacy that was shadowing me, it was he was like my greatest mentor. You know what I mean? So it changed the dynamic for me a bit. I think those those parts of it, if that makes sense. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to be clear. Yeah. Um, did yeah. you wind up doing some background singing on a Sesame Street record? 
I think yes. Okay. Long, long yeah, no, we're talking like 1980. I was looking. Yeah. I'm like, can you? Yeah, that's do you? When I was a kid. Do you have a memory yeah. of that? I mean, I'm yeah. trying to figure out. Like, I was like, is she? I kind yeah. of do. I kind of do. I do. I have a memory <laughs> of like standing in a circle of with a bunch of kids, and that was that was pretty that was pretty cool for sure. Absolutely. You can you talk? I just you know because you know uh, Sarah graciously sent me a bunch of you know sort of little. Uh, bullet points about things that that you're working on or ha- are doing right now, and like you said, you've always uh-huh. around great musicians and you've had great mentors. But can you just, you know, sort of in my intro? I mean, I just feel like cats like yourself, people that are playing music, especially spiritual music or music that uh, is healing, is like th- like you guys are as important as you know medical doctors at in this time, and yeah. and and I just yeah. wonder. <clears throat> setting yourself aside, you know, there's just this, I just feel like, I think it's great, you know, Little Feet, Leone, Sherrard, those cats, they're coming to Tucson, awesome. I love <coughs> certain cover bands, but, you know, you got Tower of Power out there, you know, 40 years running, Steve Miller, Journey, all this cover band stuff now in this time. And I just wanted you to talk about for cats that are seekers and really hell bent on creating original music. Um, what are the challenges today in terms of actually being able to take that music out of the studio and, and get it on the road and actually sing for your supper? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the most honest answer is that the challenge is the music industry. Yeah, that's which, right. That's right. Well, what I'm saying is like, you know, when you said to me, difficult to overcome. Although there's always a solution, so I don't mean it in a no. in a defeatist kind of tone. But yeah, you know, it's 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 difficult. You just got to play what you love and connect with people that you love. I can say one thing that I've experienced is that I've. <coughs> Excuse me. I've always trusted um, my intuition with connecting to people that that see me and I see them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you find you, you you play with people that you just have a kismet and a chemistry with. It's not that that you need to have them like you or that they need to have you like what they're doing. You just click in with each other. And when you follow what I have followed that which I always have, and I have always put that above and beyond looking for um, a power move or a, a, a an ambitious positioning of myself in the industry. Like when you just go with the thing that feels good mm. and the person who's making the song you're trying to convey is coming to life when you're in a room with this person that's always going to lead to the right thing, even if it doesn't lead to, you know, the press that you want or the name on the bill that you want or the producer that you thought you wanted. Like all of that stuff is, it's very easy to feel like you're up against the clock and up against so much competition for for young people. But really, if you just stick with what feels good, you're going to land right where you're supposed to. I really, really believe that with with my whole heart. That's one thing I I feel clear about. You, I'm curious, I I just interviewed, ironically, a good friend of yours yesterday, uh, Chris Masterson, who you've collaborated with quite a bit. Oh, yes, yeah. And he... He's wonderful. 
A great cat and amazing player. Yeah. Um, yes. And I kind of wanted to ask you the same thing uh, because, you know, like you and Josh right now are, you know, deep in the in the production process. And, I, and you know, you're mm-hmm. – and I just – I was asking him about – because when, you know, they made their first album, him and his wife, and then uh, it was kind of just mm-hmm. done, you know, in a very sort of stripped down way. I, he, he doesn't even think he gave himself credit as a producer, and then they got noticed by New West, and then they, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, make an album, tour the album, I forget the exact amount of time, then make another album, mm-hmm. tour it again. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, have you gone the opposite direction? Uh, in some cases, the band might have done this, uh, other bands have done a jazz bands. Pat Metheny. Have you, can you talk about a, a, a time when you, um, allowed so like you know you t- you road tested songs and allowed them to take on a life of their own, and then went in the studio to record them. I I, I seem to have an issue with certain uh, the certain amount of people that feel this necessity to get in the studio and record songs before they really are a living, breathing organism. And I wonder if you've actually done that in the past. Where and if you if you think that that's kind of a good way to go because like for instance, I mean the Grateful Dead they they didn't they didn't get in the studio for seven years to make an album and they 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 spent right. five years working. I mean they also were aggressively touring the country, but still, it those songs once they got in the studio, uh, and it's not about making a hit, but they just they had developed their own life and I wonder if you've done that with your own work. Uh, well, I've had different experiences with different, um, with different albums. Actually, uh, um, when I made my second record, I've made three records in total, and my second one I made with Joe Henry, um, and he actually asked me specifically to not sing the songs on my gigs, Hmm. to not get too familiar with them, so that my performances of them were live and kind of discovered in the moment as opposed to practiced, you know, in the muscle memory of the voice. And um, that was really interesting. And I think that, you know, that was that was scary and added to my vulnerability, I think, when I sang those tunes in the studio. Um, and interesting. And I've done it the other way, too. I mean, I've done it, you know... The record with Josh, I think just because of the timing of it and the the way the material came together, I had sang maybe two or three of those songs I had done on my set live a few times, but the rest were so new that they also were kind of unexplored. Um, and I think both have merit. Both is was that sort of your question about? Yeah, well, about no. I mean, I want to go back to the. the I want to go back to Joe Henry to the Henry methodology, what, what exactly he was asking you to play, play instrumental, uh, it, like the, play the tunes instrumentally live, but don't sing them. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what he, what he was asking you to do. Oh no. Like he, like in other words, once we had the song list and we knew what we were going to go in and cut, he, he, you know, I had some touring coming up. I had months between the, the, the final song list we made and then the actual recording there right. was some time in between in which I had tours lined up, but instead of going out and playing the songs live, I, I, um, you know, held them back, held them off the set list so that I would go in and, and sort of sing them 
for the, you know, I, I sang them in my living room to prepare for the record a little bit, um, but had not taken them in front of an audience, which which changes how we sing a song, I think, most definitely. I just um, think that, you, you know, know sometimes it's just, you know, to me, like, I, I also want to get your opinion on this. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it more from, like, when I talk about people, this idea of, you know, I remember, again, going back to Weeder, you know, he, he showed up at, I don't know what club it was, but, you know, when they were doing uh, Wheels on Wheel on Fire, I mean, this was all very new, cutting-edge, interesting music, and mm-hmm. people were digging it. And, and the point is that, like, Miles Davis, I mean, Lee Morgan, these guys in the jazz world, you know, they were like, their philosophy was, <clears throat> we really dig what we're doing, and we hope the, you as the audience digs what we're doing, but even if you don't, we're still going to do it. Cause we, 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 you know, and I just feel like there's this, um, with just the way we sort of consume music now and the pr- ticket prices and sort of these, this insatiable desire for cover music and this idea of placating to the audience when in fact mm-hmm. Bill Graham was like, no, no, no. You, the audience needs to dig this stuff because they're going to dig it. They may not know who Malo is. They may not know who the Sons mm-hmm. of Champlin are. They may not know who the band is, but they need to hear it. It's good for them. And I just wonder about, like, you know, without alienating people, because, you know, I mean, you do want to, you know, sing for your supper. I mean, what do you feel about the idea of people, uh, you know, it's okay to, to be uncomfortable at a show. I mean, John Coltrane, when he started to blow modally. I mean, there were women in the crowd that would be like, make him stop, make him stop. But he just played through it, you know? And I just, to me, it's like, there's sort of this idea. And I just wanted you to talk about, you know, in your own existence, like if you feel it's okay to, for for the audience to walk out of a gig with feeling a little bit uncomfortable or being, <laughs> or, or being a little introspective. I mean, dude, if I was that age in the six, I'd want to walk home burning. You know, I want to burn and you know, I don't want to form how, here's the question. How do you avoid getting into a formula trip when you're touring? You know, how do you keep yourself engaged and, and make it, and, and make it different because after a while, like in the, you know, you're a jazz singer. I mean, you, how do you only, how do you play the same song? How do you never play the same song the same way once, you know? Mm, that's a very, very good question. I was starting to laugh because I remembered playing a, being, being hired for a folk festival, which I often am, except that no one knows that my band is like one of the loudest rock and roll bands <laughs> of times I've ever heard. Yeah, no, it's not an acoustic know, band. I, yeah, right. Which I'm proud of, yeah. but... I have actually, not only have I had people walk out, but I played a folk festival. We had a good slot, too. We were headlining and shit. It was a big, there had to have been 800 or 1,000 people under this one tent at this festival that we were doing this this headlining <laughs> thing. And we all got up there and the electric guitar and the bass and the drums and we were on fire. fire. We started kicked off with Didn't It Rain, a nice version of a Mahalia Jackson song with a great New Orleans kind of rhythm section thing and a searing electric guitar. <clears throat> and I think we got to the 
maybe halfway through the first chorus, <laughs> I looked up, <laughs> and people were filing out by the hundreds. Okay, you know, I want to just stop you. I just, really, I want to stop you right there. Let me paint a visual. Go ahead, for yeah, you. go ahead, yeah, please. Yeah. Okay, yeah. imagine being on stage and you're looking out at like a white tent, but this is not like this is a tent with many entrances, right? Like imagine it kind of dotted exits <laughs> through the tent around there, and about a thousand people just walking out in droves, like, by, by, by the hundreds. And there was maybe 50 people left. And they had the greatest night, and so did I. And I have to tell you that I laughed till I cried about that with my friend Martha Scanlon. So... I think that might be the greatest story. Yeah, I mean, that might, people yeah. walk out, keep good friends around you, and laugh at everything that feels shitty because... Those are the things that you'll laugh about 10 years from now even. And, uh, you know, they're the things that make it colorful. And I'll tell you what, to answer the second part of your question, that's the shit that'll make you sing something different. Exactly. Because, because whether you're embarrassed or angry or already arrived to humor or you don't give a shit or whatever the, the, the array of emotions you could have about a moment like that or a gig like that, you'll sing the song different. And you'll sing it different the next night when you're remembering that. I just can—I mean, I had just chills up my arm when you told that story because uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played with uh, Dave, David Nelson from the New Riders of the Purple Sage, but he no, <laughs> back in the so he was you know fully ensconced uh, in the in the bluegrass scene uh, with Garcia and those cats, and he would sit at the Fillmore West. He would stand behind the the uh, speakers and. You know, a lot of when the when the dead were still the warlocks, so they were <clears throat> they were generally playing a lot of cover tunes. But then they they'd save mm-hmm. one tune where they'd really stretch out. And he he said when they would start doing that 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 jam tune, that unusual tune, he he would just say that everybody would start to flock to the exits. And oh, really? yeah, and he, it was I amazing. I mean, it was and it yeah. just the way you describe it. And so the point is. A lot of producer, a lot of people would come up to Garcia. People that at the show say, "Why don't you just play this one tune, man? It's going to be recognizable. People are going to love it." And Garcia would say, "Ah, eh, what's the point?" And I just wanted to know right. about, like, okay, so that festival under the white tent in the, fo- in, the in the folk fest. I mean, you had already developed. Um, how how did you how how have you learned? Oh, to take what you do seriously, but not take yourself that seriously. Because ultimately, you know, people will say, well, that's not folk music. It's not acoustic. It's, you know, but but it's all music. And I just wanted you to t- talk to younger cats about the moxie and the sort of ability to sort of let, again, use that word surrender, but really mm. be yourself and learn to do what you do seriously. But like you said, you were laughing your ass off. Mm-hmm. It didn't. And to well, me, the, that's the... Yeah. I mean, you can't... You're kind of... When you get to that point, you're like, all right, this is like... Because your <laughs> band's looking at you like, holy shit, is she going to be all right? I don't understand <laughs> like, why people were running away. It's, it was a beautiful <laughs> tune. It wasn't like you're playing metal or something. I mean, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, they just weren't expecting drums and guitar and... and um, yeah. That whole festival, that whole weekend was very funny. The Sisters Folk Festival. I ended up, <clears throat> I then, the thing that made it, that added kind of 
more to the insult to injury and more humor to the to the original uh, the original punchline is that that wasn't like it wasn't like I got to pack up and go home the next day. <laughs> like I had to stick around that festival oh, and play two or three more very badly attended shows along dotted along the beautiful the beautiful setup of Sisters Folk and Sisters Oregon. Um, but you know, um, I just think that I I mean it was it was just. I think you arrive at the humor, like I said, just by, you know, you think about your heroes. Like, mm. there you go, the Grateful mm. Dead. Like, mm. those guys can can walk through this. I can walk through this. And it actually reminds me of something that my dad said to me that I want to share with you because it was such a great, it was such a great um, teaching. And I think about it all the time. And I repeat it a lot because I think it's so right on. I remember him saying to me, we were talking about something. I was telling him something I was insecure about. I don't remember what it was. It was something musical that I was working on or maybe a bad gig I had had or I don't know what it was. And he said, honey, he said, all those people that you respect, all the people that are your heroes that made you want to sing in the first place, he said, every single one of them was afraid of the same thing that you are. And what you're afraid of is you're afraid of falling on your ass, Mm -hmm. he said. And all those folks were afraid of it too, and all of them did. Everybody you love fell on their ass, figuratively speaking, and got up and dusted themselves off and kept going. I love it. You know, and I I love it it too. I freaking, because I'm always, I just feel like, well, as candidly as you can, do you feel that you've created some of your best art under the most adverse circumstances? I mean, to me, like that's you only grow through adversity. And I Well, you had yes, yes. Yeah. I agree 100%. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I mean it just it was it's beautiful because uh, you know, I deal with it with with my kids. I mean, they're not musicians, but you know, they're as teenagers the you're completely lost. You know, you really don't know what, who you are, what you're doing. And I just try to harken back to my own experiences and people around me. And, you know, just being 40, 43, it's just sort of like, okay, um, you know, I know that I've been humbled. Everybody falls on their ass. Like all the cats that I've talked to, uh, you know, they, like you said, dust yourself off yet at the, and at the same time, I also feel to create cathartic or really beautiful music is oftentimes done through that adversity. And I think a lot of, like you're talking about, the insecurity comes where people are going up to this line of comfortability and they're feeling a little bit stagnant, but yet they're also petrified that if they play beyond what they know, they're going to fall on their ass, which is what they have Mm -hmm. to do to keep growing. You know, it's a really, it's a fine line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. It, it's con- it constantly requires you, is, is requiring of, 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 of a person to completely, um, I don't want to say, to, to leave behind everything they know and start over from scratch from the first note of whatever it is you're mm. playing. Mm. It's just the way that it is. You know, and those gigs where where something comes up that makes you feel uncomfortable, whether it's the way we're playing something or singing something or 
or a story we tell in between songs or tripping, anything. You can trip and fall on stage. I mean, there's any little thing that can happen, and then it just forces you into this kind of, you know, this very clear conversation with yourself, which is, you know, am I am I going to stick with myself? Like it's it's like the um, essays of self reliance from Emerson. Absolutely, you know? I remember there's there's one of them that says something along the lines of, uh, you know, there comes a time and in, in every man's education where you're where you are face yourself and you have to decide if you're going to stand with yourself <clears throat> for better or for worse. And I think about that a lot too. And you know, it's it's the it's the gift of of being a musician. That's why we all do it, even though we're all broke, and even though the industry sucks, and the, and the money is inconsistent, because there's nothing else more satisfying. It really is a... Absolutely. It is your church, you know? It is your church. Um, did you... Uh, I know you were just a little a young girl at the time, but I, do you have any memories of Shangri-La? I... Do, I do have memories of Shangri-La, but they have nothing to do with me. Like, I think, I don't know, like, like, I'm, I just... What was the last yeah. waltz like? What was Shangri-La like? And, like, yes, I have memories, but they're the kind of memories that you can imagine. Like, what would you remember if you were six? Like, you'd remember, like, you know, there was, like, a big hill that we played on, that we played hide-and-seek on, and... And like, yeah, it wasn't know, like you were in the I studio. Remember, like, yeah, I, I did. A refrigerator full of Coca Cola <laughs> that I had easy access to because, like, people were too distracted to say no. Like, that's that was the good stuff, you know. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I mean, I can't. I'm, I'm also, I'm just when you're mem- the when the the other thing is like, you know, when you beca- when you were 14 and you started to play gigs. I mean, at that time. You know, your dad had sort of the getaway in. Did you did you have a chance to play with like? Did you have a chance to, as a to play with Butter uh, Butterfield or or any of those gigs? I did not, not with Paul, no. But I did, um, no. But I did, yeah. I mean, I was around. You know, I was I was in and out at that time because that was the time when my dad was. I mean, they were all so so. Uh, enslaved to their addictions and struggling, you know, they were all, they were all struggling and they didn't have it together yet. Um, so that was like, I don't, you know, I wasn't around a lot of mm. that at that time mm. because, because when I was around them, <clears throat> I was carving out, you know, a social place of my own with my friends and, 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 you know, uh, things that felt, Manageable, I guess, at the time. So you know? I just and want I say you, that with a lot of love. And no, absolutely. I mean, I, I. It was what it was. Um. So you, when you talk, you know, just in your bio, it talks about like you, you split, you spent time growing up in Woodstock, New York City, and in Los Angeles. Um. Wh- like when you started to get on the bandstand, you know, fourteen years old. Was that in Woodstock, or was it mainly? It was also maybe in L.A. or where? Like, where were you um, playing? No, that was with my high school band, um, Chili Winds. Whoa, <laughs> Chili Winds! Oh yeah, oh yeah. At a bar in New York City, we used to play these clubs, like up in you know, like on 106th Street and Broadway. 
Cannons, I remember it was That called. is sweet. Was that so upper... I did that, wow. and I got to study jazz with um, an incredible teacher at my high school, which was in New York City, and his name was Aaron Bell, and he, um, he was a huge influence on me, and I sang in his jazz ensemble, and that was kind of my... That was my thing, singing with Aaron and then doing my rock and roll um, cover band gigs at Cannons, you know. So um, can you just talk a little bit about the, were you singing like your own original jazz tunes or were you just kind of channeling people like Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan? I mean, I'm curious about how that intersected, uh, you know, actively with, with the with the Cannons gig and and how you you merged what you were learning from Aaron with with sort of more of the uh, more of the rock. Uh, I wished I had been more more sophisticated to be able to merge them. I mean, I guess if anything was merging, it was just the you know the the presence required to kind of stand and sing. Um, a jazz standard, mm-hmm. um, maybe taking that same quiet and focus and trying to put it to the other material I was singing and trying to kind of serve, like, stay in my tone and develop my tone as a singer. Um, I think that that probably influenced me a lot. I hadn't thought about that, actually, until you asked that question, but maybe, maybe that's something I was... That seems like something I was standing in at the time. Um, but when you say you studied yeah. with him, I'm just—I would love you to, because I—I just have this 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 hard time like believing that um, you know some street language like blues or jazz can be codified in a curriculum. And I realize you didn't go to Berkeley, but like now, like your like your son, I mean, don't you know who am I? But it's like you know, for me, it's almost like I feel like. Uh, he should just get on the be on the bandstand and writing original music and playing, and because uh, I just don't know what how you can really what the academy offers anymore. And I just wonder if you, what you could talk about right. from from those lessons because I mean you were fourteen playing at a bar in New York. I, I mean, uh, Cannon's yeah. was. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, Ahmad Jamal was ten years old when he joined the union. I mean, kids were allowed to sit with their dads when they were playing. You know, there was a lot more of an ability to sort of grow up quicker. And now, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, so I just wonder what you took away from that experience, uh, in the, in that jazz community. Maybe, maybe you learned to sing more behind the beat. I don't know, maybe nothing. I, you know, mm-hmm. but the point is, I just wonder about what was the most useful thing that you took away from, that experience? Mm, Gosh, well, you know, he was a really intense teacher, Dr. Aaron Bell. He had been Duke Ellington's bass player for many years. He was, I just loved him. I just loved him. He just made me, (laughs) he just was like a bright light. Um, And, and I think that, uh, I learned so much. I mean, he taught us, very difficult arrangements of standards and had us trying to do choral jazz singing. And and that in and of itself required a lot of focus and also relying on the arrangement and the other voices to 
to make your own thing shine, like learning collaborate, learning the collaborative aspect of harmony singing, um, mm. learning to mm. trust yourself when you're singing a lead, um, learning to open your ears. I I think that it you know just being able to be around a teacher like that was what a what a lucky what a lucky and kind of just just incredible thing that I ended up with him as my jazz teacher at Trinity. Um, Is it fair to and, say that you, I mean, were you, you were savvy enough to realize that you didn't want to be a starving genius, so you, you moved into more of a, a rock-based, because, I mean, jazz, I mean, the amount of j- jazzers that died broke or poor, I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, not that you, you know, yeah. I, 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 I have to say, and I'm discovering this more as I get older, I'm 51 now, and I think back you know, now I have a son who's 14. I think about myself at that age. Right. I just did not have, I just didn't have that. I, I, I can't explain it. Like, I just wasn't thinking about being a professional singer. I just wanted to, it's just like what I could do. I dig. No, I and dig. what I was good at. Mm. And it's sort of, I just wanted to get better at singing. And I just kind of followed it music really found me and so I went into what felt right like then I would start singing with a band and then I would start singing then I was I got older I would get hired to do some harmony singing because I got good at that and then I kind of fell into a band that was Olabel which was a deep collaborative band with a lot of harmony singing I just kind of um you know things have the the creative next step has always seemed to find me I don't know if I've been as intentional about it as I am now, which feels great, which is kind of a different, different season for me in my life. I just, I have, just choosing, choosing what I want to, what I want to pursue next and who I want to work with and what I want it to look like and being a little bit more specific in, in my intention for that. But um, when I was young, I just kind of was, was just following following the road in front of me, so to speak. And I also, that's, that, that also makes me sound really like happy-go-lucky. I also think that I really lacked ambition, which is not always, I think that people that really want to get to a certain place by a certain point and get good at something, this and that, and have a specific pattern of what they want, how they want it to look, I think you have to have a lot of ambition in the music industry for that kind of career. And so I didn't ever really just have that just wasn't my personality. Yeah. And I think the other, you know, ambition, I I feel the same way. I mean, part of it is, um, uh, not having a lot of expectations, uh, and just sort of figuring out how to be in the flow, uh, like, and, and not, uh, yeah, I just, I feel like I'm, I try to approach things with intention and no expectations. I do, I, I have to read you this quote from Tony Leone and, and then you can respond. He said, this is my interview with him. He said, um, <clears throat> uh, on our first tour with Olabel, it was part of something T-Bone Burnett produced called the Great High Mountain Tour, which was a second installment of his Down from the Mountain Tour, which included a lot of great bluegrass people, including Ralph Stanley Alison Krauss, the Cox family, <clears throat> Norman, Norman and Nancy Blake. We were around all these dyed-in-the-wool bluegrass and folk musicians. 
being that we only got to play three songs a night and being that it was quote unquote old time and its flavor, they said, you guys can come on the tour, but what you're going to do is just sing. Leone, if you want to come on the tour, you're not going to play any drum set. For me at that point, it was really strange. I was really nervous about going on that tour because I felt like, quote, this is what I do. I play drums. What am I going to do? To, what am I going to be doing standing up on stage and singing? What ended up happening was that it got me away from me just being on my instrument and just looking at music through the point of view of the drums. It also opened my uh, eyes and ears to the great roots music of America. Being around all these pickers and growing up playing a little guitar, I was, inspi- I was inspired to pick up a mandolin. And then he goes on and talks about how he picked up his Kentucky mandolin at the Woodstock Music Store. Um, you know, but, you know, in general, like, I guess... What is something that, uh, where, where's an area creatively or, you know, personally or just constitutionally where, you know, you know, you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to grow? Mm. I mean, there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, but I mean, like one thing that like you kinds of shit together. I dig. I dig. I mean, honestly, I, if, you know. I feel like I could spend lifetimes just continuing to get my singing where I wanted. I've worked hard on my singing, and I've, 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 I'm, I keep discovering new things about my voice. I'm working really hard on songwriting right now. That's a fascinating process. Um, I love playing piano. I write enough to, to I play enough to write with it, but I'd love to get better. I mean, you know, you hang out with like hang out for five minutes with any of the guys that I play with. And I'm like, Jesus, I got to get If I could do one little thing like they do, and I don't mean it like where it makes me jealous or insecure, but it's inspiring. Totally. So, I mean, I feel that I will never, I just hope I keep coming back as a musician. If we do reincarnate and if that happens, that would be really cool to keep coming back and get better and better every time. Um, <laughs> I just I wanted to close by asking you about, um, you know, your mom is a very interesting character in the world of music, uh, you know, and kind of flies below the radar. But um, mm-hmm. I did want you to just talk a little bit about, you talked about Jasper Diamond's mom, uh, but I just wanted you to talk about your mom and sort of... Um, you know the perseverance that it takes to be not just a woman in this cult in this society but also you know a creative force and you know what you've kind of taken from her along the way uh you know obviously she's still here and um but I just wanted you to talk about your mom well she was you know she she was a big part of my education in terms of especially of playing a lot of different music for me Hmm. because I fell so deeply in love with Aretha Franklin. Like I heard Aretha Franklin when I was maybe 13 or 14, or I'm sure I had heard her before then, but that was my first kind of conscious time of hearing her sing. And that was it. I was just in on all soul singers. And that's, I wanted to be any of any of the women that I was kind of just falling 
so deep into the the phrasing and the tone and the nuances of soul singing and all the early stack stuff and and um that was my great love musically but then having her make sure that I was listening to Laura Nero and wow. uh Dolly Parton and the McGarrigal sisters sure. and all of these, you know, and Joni Mitchell and like a lot of really brilliant, brilliant folk artists, all of whom were also deep soul singers, you know, and those artists in particular have a very, very strong kind of line in their thing that, that, that I think can easily be traced to the influence of soul music in their own writing and singing. And that, that was important for me and helped me so much discover my own voice. Um, you know, and she always encouraged me to, to sing and she knew that that's what I could do. And, and she, she really turned me on to a lot of music and kept, kept, um, pushing me to keep discovering my own voice in a certain way. Um, hmm. And so for that, I'm very grateful. I, uh, you, you mentioned reincarnation before. I, I just, I was wondering if you could talk about if your dad visits you uh, in some way, uh, if, he, if you communicate, if you have, if you, you know, we, I, we've lost, I mean, your dad lived a very hardy existence and definitely laid it all, left it all in the field. Uh, but um, I just wonder how you guys communicate today. I, you know, when my father first passed away, I really had a lot of connection with him and a lot of dreams and a lot of exchanges and um as time has gone by it's gotten less frequent that seems to be pretty common for people Mm. who knows what the mystery of that is but you know i think that um we don't really live in a culture where where that is i was just speaking with my friend about this the other day where you know we don't we don't live in a culture where where we practice those those connections. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's to what my show is. Yeah, I totally. I agree with and, you. Yeah. And um, it becomes something that's kind of maybe just because of the way that our culture handles death, it almost becomes something sentimental mm-hmm. and sorrowful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I don't know. I, I personally believe that, that, Maybe everybody is always present, and maybe time and space and and experience move a lot differently when we go to the next. And I have a peaceful feeling about him, and I'm sure that that whatever whatever um, place his spirit resides in is right where he's meant to be. And I think that um, you know he left me an incredible gift. His his death and the and the process of his dying and my my own um, sort of experience kind of kind of midwifing him through through his death, which which um, I didn't expect to do, but that's kind of how it happened, and it left me with with a a deep deep faith that we that we 
truly get born into something next. Wow. Um, it changed my fear of death. Uh, it changed my fear of my own death a lot to have gone through that with him. So, you know, I can't say I feel him all the time around me as closely as I did in the first year that he was gone. But, but, um, <clears throat> Well, for but what it's worth, I mean... He it, left me with a great faith. He, I he love, left me with a real in, in, internal faith that, that uh, I have. I mean, the whole time that we've been talking, this ray of light has been shining in. And again, there's it's all unquantifiable. But I, you know, he, <clears throat> even his own, I mean, with my daughters, we have spent so many t- hours uh, listening to his live performances with... Um, Russell Smith singing these songs, Lucretia, and all these incredible tunes. And, you know, I just feel like when you put stuff out into the ether, uh, you know, he's still he's still with us. You know, his spirit is still there. And I think the fact that um, maybe there hasn't been a lot of, you know, uh, radio traffic, so to speak, or you haven't felt his presence, yeah. that means he is in a really good place. He is in a peaceful spot, yeah. you know, and, and I think yeah. that... And, and most importantly, he's just really proud of you. And after talking to you for 70 minutes, you know, it's just like, really, um, you know, I just want you to keep growing. I, I feel like you have many chapters left to write in your book and in, in this life. And, you know, and I also would, you know, just and I think you do this, but, you know, just constantly create for the sake of creation with the people that you love and feel an instant synergy with and but also realize that you know don't take anything for granted and and come come to that creation with a sense of urgency and just know that there are no guarantees you know and that's and I guess the other thing I would say is are, are you planning on coming to Arizona at all to play music or because <laughs> otherwise I'm going to have to I think my next trip if if you're up for it you know, I'm a Long Island guy, but uh, I'm going to have to get up to the... I've never been to the to the Midnight Ramble, ever. Oh, man. <laughs> You've got to come to the barn. I love Arizona, but you... <laughs> I There's nothing, as far as I know, on the books for Arizona, but you, you should come to the barn. You will love it. It's a very special place, and we should... We should um, we'll do another interview. You know, I mean, I, I you know, we could do it in person, but I'd love to. I really need to. I mean, everybody's up. I mean, even when your dad was rocking that place with you, people would walk into the bathroom and there's leave. There's your dad's toothbrush there. Just the whole thing sounds totally magical, you know. It's pretty. It's pretty incredible. And 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 when you when you can come, please, you know, reach out. And let me know ahead of time, and let's make sure it's when I'm going to be there, Absolutely. so that I can show you the the place and everything because it's a it's a special room, and there's a couple little little things in there that you would really dig seeing downstairs, and the, you know we have some a little kind of museum set up in the downstairs area where the dressing rooms are and stuff. So we'll definitely make that happen. And thank you so much for the conversation today. I really enjoyed. That's it. all I care about is that you had a good time and. Uh... Much love to you, Amy Helm. It's so good to connect with you. We'll do it again. Thanks, Jake. All right. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Bye. Bye.